Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that loves to be gay and trans and can't be stopped. Today we have Ozzy and Adelaide. I literally, literally. I literally, I literally, <laughs> literally, <laughs> I literally just heard it's a party. We can do what we want. That you know, like the beginning to the Miley Cyrus song. <laughs> we can't stop. So true. Yes, that's that, the reality. Yes, that's that applies. That's um, the vibe. <laughs> that is for sure the vibe. Um. <laughs> Well, we just have the two of us today. You're welcome, listeners. We're going to get weird, obviously. Um, yes, as <laughs> as always on an Aussie and Addy app. Um, but today we're going to be talking, we're going to be doing a bit of a grab bag episode because, frankly, there is a lot of bullshit going on in the world right now. You hate to see um, it. So first, we're going to be talking about the recent nonsense at the New York Times, how reporters there are opposing anti-trans media bias and kind of the backlash that's caused. Um, I'm going to get a little bit into sort of the history of transphobia and homophobia at the New York Times as well. Then we're going to go over the most recent anti-trans bills coming out of Republicans' cursed fascist brains. Um, And finally, because this is all very dark and we're frankly just feeling a bit depressed about it, we wanted to spend some time on stories of trans joy and power and just hype our communities up a little bit because it's been rough out there. Yeah, exactly. When Ozzy suggested this episode, like, I'm so excited that they're going to share their brilliance with you and also their righteous rage because we all need to be feeling that as well um about all this fuckery that's going on at the new york times and i think we felt i think all of us particularly at the end of last week when some of these bills started getting passed just felt this heaviness this like intense trans heaviness because of the shit that we're going to talk about and so i think like just ending it with these moments of trans joy and so we really appreciate all of you who shared those moments that we're going to share with everyone yes definitely um so to kick us off with the new york times i feel like it's honestly a little hard to know where to begin with this story because arguably this goes back to like the founding of the new york times and like media coverage of gender and sexuality in this country more broadly um but in terms of more recent history i would say that the origin of the new york times current sort of fraught relationship with queer people goes back to the 1980s and their coverage or lack thereof of the AIDS crisis. Um, So famously, the executive editor at the time, Abe Rosenthal, was against covering HIV AIDS and refused to even let reporters use the word gay unless it was in quotation marks. So under Rosenthal, the New York Times would hardly report on sexuality or issues of queerness at all. When they did, they would use the more sort of clinical term homosexual rather than gay. Um, And it was two years of deaths from AIDS before the New York Times would run even a single front page story about it. 
by which point over 500 people had died of the illness as confirmed by the CDC. The real numbers were obviously much higher. That's just what was sort of known and documented by the CDC at that time. Um, and of course, there were many, many more deaths after that. Um, this was just two years into human awareness of this virus. Um, in contrast, the New York Times during the same period ran four front page stories on someone who killed seven people, which is not to say that that didn't also deserve coverage, but there's an obvious distinction in what was receiving coverage when it was mostly straight people dying versus what wasn't when it was mostly queer people dying. So this lack of coverage led activists with groups like ACT UP to focus on the New York Times as a specific target. Um, according to Sarah Shulman, who folks probably know as an iconic queer writer today, um, but at the time, she was a relatively unknown reporter for New York's underground gay newspapers. Um, so she remembers that at one point, the New York Times got its first fax machine and activists reacted by faxing them one mile of black paper to represent the deaths that had occurred on their watch. Um, they also made a parody New York Times called the New York Crimes and distributed it throughout the city. Uh, honestly, these are great ideas to think about today. It's a shame that tying up someone's fax machine just doesn't have the same impact as it used to. Um, but I think those are, you know, strategies that we need to be thinking about again today, honestly. Um, so in 1986, uh, Abe Rosenthal left his role as executive editor and... After that, in June of 1987, the paper finally used the word gay outside of quotes for the first time. So happy Pride Month. It was June. Uh, but it was far from the end of the New York Times. For the gays. Fraud. For the, yes, in exactly. quotations, gays. <laughs> for, yes, for the <laughs> gays. <laughs> but yes, so, you know, that that was a step forward. But there has still been a lot of bullshit um, between the New York Times and queer communities. I think the early days of the AIDS epidemic is a good time period to look back to because it's kind of similar to what we're seeing today with coverage of youth transition. On one side, we have a literal deadly disease killing queer people or in the modern context, powerful people who would like to be killing trans and queer people are encouraging suicide and other forms of death by removing the possibility of transition. Um, and the other quote unquote side of this debate is simply gay people who would like to be alive. Um, in the 1980s, the New York Times considered even like reporting on AIDS or caring about it to essentially be an activist position. Queer reporters couldn't afford to not be activists under that definition since their lives were literally at stake and the lives of their friends and family members. So similarly today, when the New York Times refers to trans reporters and readers as activists, which we're going to get into, what they're doing is framing trans people's ability to live as a political debate that has like two equally legitimate sides to it, which it does not. So to get into what I've sort of been hinting at here, the New York Times has had a long history of unethical reporting on trans people, especially trans children. The first transphobic article that I personally remember seeing in the New York Times was an opinion piece published in 2015, during which time I was a student journalist at one of my college papers and was sort of starting to notice this like inkling of transphobia coming into like the mainstream press. 
it's not that the mainstream press was like good on trans issues before this. It's that for the most part, the existence of trans people was fully ignored. Uh, listeners probably know that 2014 was the time that a very well-known Time magazine cover story called The Transgender Tipping Point was published featuring Laverne Cox on the cover. Um, and this is a point that people refer to, the trans tipping point in 2014, because it marked kind of the first time that a mainstream media outlet had covered trans identity in such depth um, in like a contemporary context. And after that point, that's kind of when other mainstream outlets like the New York Times began to cover transness as sort of a thing that the majority of the cis population was considered to be aware of. Um, so I think that it's sort of telling that one of the first pieces the New York Times published after the trans tipping point was this transphobic op-ed. Um, just one quote from it that I pulled, the writer wrote about Caitlyn Jenner, quote, tall and strong, he never had to figure out how to walk streets safely at night, unquote. Um, so this <sighs> article was just openly misgendering her, like, literally, she was out, like, no, there's no reason to be just, like, in, use, like, factually inaccurate pronouns. Um, that just seems like bad journalism to me, but what do I know? Um, so that's sort of, like, the foundation of all of this in my mind. More recently, the New York Times has become possibly the worst outlet in terms of giving a voice to transphobic political talking points, specifically around childhood transition. But as we're seeing with legislation, which we're going to get into in a little bit, there is this, essentially Republicans are using kids as like the wedge issue to push forward transphobic policy and adults will still be next. Like they are mm -hmm. coming for trans adults right after um, so this is like a, I don't know, it goes right in line with like what Republicans want um, the talking points to be. Focusing on youth transition in itself is sort of a fascist strategy at this point. Um, yeah, the whole thing, it's fascist. Like it's giving, yes. like obviously if you're in the trans community, you've probably seen a lot of like this kind of correlation between this and other like absolutely horrific regimes of power um yes because that's what it is it's it's absolutely destructive definitely um in terms of the new york times specifically there was a great article by tom skoka in an outlet called popula at the beginning of this year that basically did some data journalism, counted up every single story the New York Times has published, and found that a total of around 14,000 words have been published specifically on the front page of the New York Times, raising questions about whether trans youth should be transitioning or not. I'm going to just um, burn it all down. And by it, yeah. I mean their offices. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is a joke for legal reasons. Um, totally, um, totally, totally, totally. <laughs> Um, and that that number, by the way, the 14,000 words doesn't include an 11,000 word New York Times magazine story, which is technically a different outlet that was published on the same topic, or the many, many transphobic op eds that are not in the news section, they're in the opinion section, published by New York Times writers like Pamela Paul and Michelle Goldberg, 
or the papers reporting on other issues of the day, like whether trans women should be allowed to play sports, uh, written by reporters like Michael Powell. Um, and I'm just mentioning these names, by the way, solely so that if you see these names on an article about trans identity, you can just know to ignore that article because it's going to be absolute nonsense. Garbage. Um, uh, yeah. Garbage. Like, I mean, honestly, if it's in the New York Times, it's probably, I, so true. Probably like, going to be garbage. That's probably a good um, starting point. <laughs> but yeah, I guess as, as we're going to get into, there are like, you know, a small number of good New York Times contributors, um, reporters who are doing good Doing work, the most. Um, yeah. Which it's very sad that their work is being overshadowed by like the larger amount of bullshit that the New York Times is publishing. Um, So amidst this sort of context at the Times, a group of New York Times contributors recently got together and they put together this open letter criticizing the paper's biased coverage of trans life. Their argument, which I would say is fairly uncontroversial given the data, is that the New York Times is devoting so much more coverage and, you know, inches of paper to doubts and questions about trans identity and almost none to actual interviews with trans people or like anything positive or even just like neutral about it's trans like they life. don't know what journalism actually means. Yeah, it it really is. It's like they've gone so far into like both sides ism that they've like now they're actually just covering the one side. Literally. Well, that's like, like also an allegory for the entire US government. It's like the Democrats have for so long been yeah, like, "Oh, we're so not true. this," but instead <laughs> of like actually doing anything, they have become that which they have criticized. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's really just, I don't know, it's like starting to look less like they're just asking questions at the Times and more like someone high up at the Times is like part of this Republican strategy mm -hmm. of like harassment, oh, evaluation of trans people. Um, that is what most um, media insiders suspect at this point, that there's like somebody on the board who um, is is against trans people existing basically um so Canceled. these yeah absolutely um at the minimum i almost said something <laughs> at, more yes. and then i was like i already said something a little legally <laughs> sketchy so like i'll try to rein it in <laughs> yeah well we also we don't even know who it is so um you know one once we I'll find some out, cards we'll on them then we'll find out know. not a problem yeah. <laughs> um so these reporters wrote in their letter to the times quote the newspaper's editorial guidelines demand that reporters preserve a professional detachment free of any whiff of bias when cultivating their sources, remaining sensitive that personal relationships with news sources can erode into favoritism in fact or appearance. Yet the Times has in recent years treated gender diversity with an eerily familiar mix of pseudoscience and euphemistic charged language, while publishing reporting on trans children that emits relevant information about its sources. For example, Emily Bazelon's article, The Battle Over Gender Therapy, uncritically used the term patient zero to refer to a trans child seeking gender-affirming care, a phrase that vilifies transness as a disease to be feared. Bazelon quoted multiple expert sources who have since expressed regret over their work's misinterpretation. Another source, Grace Ladinsky-Smith, was identified as an individual person speaking about a personal choice to detransition, rather than the president of GCCAN, an activist organization that pushes junk science and partners with explicitly anti-trans hate groups. 
In a similar case, Katie Baker's recent feature, When Students Change Gender Identity and Parents Don't Know, misframed the battle over children's right to safely transition. The piece fails to make clear that court cases brought by parents who want schools to out their trans children are part of a legal strategy pursued by anti-trans hate groups. These groups have identified trans people as an existential threat to society and seek to replace the American public education system with Christian homeschooling. Key context Baker did not provide to Times readers. Right. And also, like, obviously, (laughs) just see our last episode if you want to know what an actual threat to society looks like. Right. Yes. Um, It's just, I I think, like... Obviously, our listeners know that trans people aren't a threat to society, so we're not going to spend too much time emphasizing that, but, like, (laughs) holy shit. Yeah, it's just, like, I don't know, seeing it laid out like this, I think, is, like, very helpful, especially for someone who, like... I, you know, I have just been largely ignoring the times at this point because I know we that we have to. Um, but that's what the normies read, and that's why it's so insidious. Right. And people think of it as like moderate or even liberal, which is part of why I think it's so insidious that it's like giving these same talking points as like Fox News, essentially, at this no, point. No, and it's so important that you're doing this. So I appreciate you because, like, it's good for all of us who, like me, like, refuse to read the Times. And so it's, like, good to right. know what's being put out there so that when we hear these weird-ass talking points, we can come come correct, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I think it's also helpful, like, for people who might sort of be on the fence or just be like, I don't know, like, I feel like there's just a lot of like, both sides have points or whatever. I think this is this letter did a really good job of laying out like the exact issues from a journalism perspective with this coverage and like analyzing it on the paper's own terms of like, this is bad journalism. Um, so this letter was published. Um, after it was published, it was also expanded. So like anyone working in media can sign it. New York Times readers and subscribers could sign it. Really just anyone who's concerned about this issue could sign it. Um, so full disclosure, I signed it at this point, um, along with over a thousand New York Times contributors and nearly 35,000 media workers and New York Times readers. Do I technically work in media because of this podcast? Like, can I sign it? <laughs> yes, I. you can definitely sign it. Anyone listening to this, you can sign it. I honestly, I don't know if they're still accepting signatures, but I'm pretty sure that they are. Um, and like, the If the we find the link, we'll it. put it in the description. Um, yes, we can do that. Um, and then I also just wanted to say for, you know, journalistic integrity purposes, I'm also a member of the Trans Journalists Association, which was one of the groups heavily involved in putting this letter together. Brag. Um, yeah, I wasn't personally involved, but, <laughs> you know, um, I definitely am in the pocket of big trans. I mean, if any of our <laughs> listeners don't know this, I don't know where you've been. That's but, hot, um, honestly. Hello. That's hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the pocket of big trans in that I center all transness in my life, you know. Yes, as as we should all aim to be, really. Yeah. Um, but I guess so. At the same time that this letter was put out, there was also like a related letter published by Glad that had a more sort of like explicitly activist bent. Um, it made specific demands of the paper like hiring more trans reporters which is something that the letter from new york times contributors stayed away from because they were trying to sort of be as 
neutral and journalistic as possible. Um, so then the New York Times executive editor, Joe Kahn, responded only to the Glad letter, but didn't even mention the letter from his own reporters. And to this day, he still has not acknowledged the difference between the two letters or really the existence of the one specifically written to him by people in his field. Um, it's sort of like he was trying to use the Glad letter to say, like, this is activist and just ignored the, like, less sort of explicitly activist version of it. Um, and I think, as a lot of others pointed out, this definitely has Abe Rosenthal banning the word gay vibes. Um, despite not actually acknowledging this letter's existence or what it even said, Khan did threaten reporters for signing a letter of the that was critical of the New York Times at all. He wrote, quote, we do not welcome and will not tolerate participation by Times journalists in protests organized by advocacy groups or attacks on colleagues on social media and other public forums. This so. is absolutely ridiculous. That, yeah, that it's, alone it's wild. is yes. like truly so ridiculous. Like I don't even have the words. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. And like for someone who works in journalism and is familiar with the Times as sort of like attitude towards journalism, I'm not like shocked by this, but right. I do I it's like the next it, level it is though. a little surprising to just full one fully ignore off. Yeah. the main letter. And mm. yeah, two, just like no, there's no like thank you for the feedback. It's just like, how dare you? How dare you cr critique anything yes. as a journalist? Right. What? Um, <laughs> like, make it make sense. <laughs> um, so my favorite part of this story is that after Joe Kahn sent that letter to the entire New York Times staff, the News Guild, which is a union I used to be a member of, it represents New York Times employees, sent a response to him. Yes. And they specifically used a labor law framework to criticize his response, making abundantly clear that this is not just a media bias issue. It's also a labor rights issue exactly. for journalists who are being threatened with firing simply for being openly trans or even being cis and just openly stating that trans people exist. Yeah. Um, so the president of the News Guild wrote, quote, I want to make one thing clear. Employees have a federally protected right to engage in concerted activity to address workplace conditions. It is a violation of federal law for the New York Times to threaten, restrain, or coerce employees from engaging in such activity, unquote. There we go. Someone ex like, expressed why, I, I, like, I couldn't even put words to it, but yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um, like, basically, they're making the argument that Joe Kahn's extremely hasty and poorly thought out response could be considered illegal. Um, I personally find it hilarious imagining him being told that he accidentally union busted while just trying to be transphobic, um, yep. which I'm sure he thought no one would question him for. Right. Um, so amidst all of this, the reporters who wrote the original letter to the New York Times have been like publishing updates. There are still some updates coming out. Um, and they pointed out that one, the paper published a transphobic op-ed defending JK Rowling at the exact same time that Joe Con put out this letter claiming they were not transphobic and being like, how dare you suggest that? Oh, wow. Um, 
On top of that, in recent weeks, there has been no news coverage at all in the New York Times of this latest kind of onslaught of anti-trans legislation, which we're going to talk more about in a moment. Uh, There was one essay in the opinion section about it, but no in-depth news coverage. So I think it's just like very telling when you see like the amount of like legal policy changes that are harming trans people and then like how sort of like small and like nothing really of note is like kids just being kids and living as their gender the new york times writes fifteen thousand words about one of those things and zero about the other it's just like wild um so one of the best summaries of this whole you know horrific nonsense whatever um that I've personally seen was in The Onion a few weeks ago. Yes, and The Onion is literally... The Onion is, like, low-key amazing. They're, yeah. like, actually the realest journalism there is. <laughs> right, yes. Like, there, it's just funny when, like, The Onion is doing better journalism than The New York Times. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to read this in full, yes. honestly, because it's short, and this is all kind of heavy and, like, sometimes we just need to use humor to make it more bearable to process what's going on here um so here we go the headline is it is journalism's sacred duty to endanger the lives of as many trans people as possible (laughs) already gold (laughs) the task of reporting is not a simple one each and every day reporters and editors at publications like the onion make difficult decisions about which issues should receive attention knowing that our coverage will influence not only how people think but also how they act. This responsibility is at the core of an ongoing debate over whether news coverage of transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people is unduly biased. As the world's leading news publication with a daily readership of 4.3 million, (laughs) The Onion is compelled to weigh in. We firmly believe that it is journalism's sacred duty to endanger the lives of as many trans people as possible. Quentin is a 14-year-old assigned female at birth who now identifies as male against the wishes of his parents. His transition was supported by one of his unmarried teachers, who is not a virgin. Ooh, roasted. (laughs) (laughs) He stole his parents' car and drove to the hospital, where a doctor immediately began performing top surgery on him. (laughs) Afterward, driving home drunk from the hospital, Quentin became suicidally depressed, and he wonders now homeless and ridden with gonorrhea, if transitioning was a mistake. (laughs) We just made Quentin up, and that's okay. It doesn't mean stories like his aren't potentially happening everywhere, constantly. (laughs) Good journalism is about finding those stories, even when they don't exist. It's about asking the tough questions and ignoring the answers you don't like, then offering misleading evidence in service of preordained editorial conclusions. In our case, endangering trans people is the lodestar that shapes our coverage. Frankly, if our work isn't putting trans people further at risk of trauma and violence, we consider it a failure. This is we so st- good. I like did not read this ahead of time of you doing it, but I'm just like, it's so spot on because it's literally what the New York Times is doing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, we stand behind our recent obsessed seeming torrent of articles and essays on trans people which we believe faithfully depicts their lived experiences as weird and gross. We've remained dedicated to finding the angles that best frame the basic rights of the gender nonconforming as up for debate. 
and we will use these same angles over and over again in hopes that this repetition makes them suffer. As journalists, it is our obligation to entertain any and all pseudoscience that gives bigotry an intellectual veneer. We must be diligent in laundering our vitriol through the posture of journalistic inquiry, and we must be allowed to fixate on the genitals. We must. It is against free speech to stop us from fixating <laughs> on the genitals. <laughs> Much of the uh, research <laughs> medical procedures, particularly in children, and whether things like hormone replacement therapy or gender-affirming surgeries are safe and appropriate. Indeed, there are critical questions to be asked about the social complexities of gender, as well as medical ethics in a profit-driven healthcare system. We are simply not interested in any of that. <laughs> Instead, we will use flawed data and spurious logic to repeatedly write the same hand-wringing arguments asking whether there are suddenly too many trans people around. Journalistic integrity demands nothing less. Mm -hmm. Naturally, courageous reporting like ours has its detractors. Our critics accuse us of transphobia and are trying to murder us online with their online mobs. They want to destroy our right to free speech and have us arrested by all the police. What gives? Why would you arrest us when it's those deviant trans people you ought to be arresting instead? Do you know what the science says about trans people getting arrested, huh? What if we could find data saying trans people should be more likely to get arrested? What will our detractors say then? They'll be silent as well they should be, and free speech will survive speech. one more day. <laughs> I'm I'm taking the gay energy of in quotes and putting free free speech in in quotes. Anyway, yes, continue. absolutely. <laughs> um, for more evidence of our time-honored journalistic commitment to endangering lives, please see our previous coverage of gay people, immigrants, black people, and women. <laughs> Institutions with massive platforms like ours must be open to different ways of endangering the trans community. That might mean using the framework of medical care as a bogeyman to imply that trans people are engaged in something sinister. That might mean turning isolated instances of detransitioning into sweeping generalizations about children being groomed. That might mean identifying the worst prejudices that transgender people face and encouraging our readers to adopt them. Did you forget yet about how we wrote that there might be data showing that trans people should be more likely to get arrested? What if that were true? Or what if non-binary people are 10 times more likely to traffic infants? What if puberty blockers are kind of a sex crime? What if doctors are climbing through windows to suture penises to sleeping cheerleaders? <laughs> the next time you see a trans person, you ought to ask yourself these questions. All great journalists, and even those lesser journalists who don't work for The Onion, eventually ponder why we do what we do. Is the point of reporting to illuminate the world around us so that we may make meaning of it? Or is it to cause people in minority groups to question their humanity and persuade others to demonize them? We know where we stand, proudly dreaming of genitals. <laughs> <laughs> Research shows that trans people are over four times more likely than cisgender people to be the victim of a violent crime. We salute our colleagues across the media who are working tirelessly to make that number even higher. Signed, The Onion Editorial Board. Ooh, I have chills. I mean, <clears throat> it's so fucked up and so dark. And also, like, because also I feel like literally the leaders at New York Times would read that and they literally would be like, well, that's correct. Right. Like, like they wouldn't like, yeah, even. It would nothing wrong with this. Right. It's just, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, I think that this is still very effective, but it's like parody is almost not even like 
a thing anymore. It's just like this is right. basically what the New York Times is saying. Exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Um. So we are going to get to TransJoy very soon. First, I just want to do a brief overview of the no, most recent important. anti-trans legislation. Yeah, it's like, I don't want to dwell on this because I know that our listeners are pretty much, for the most part, Plugged already in. aware of yeah. everything that's going on. Um, but I also know that for myself personally, sometimes like keeping up with all of this feels exhausting. So I just want to run through this since we've been talking about it. And then we will switch over to talking about TransJoy. Okay, so we are starting with one that definitely got a lot of coverage last week. I know it sent me into a bathtub spiral, personally, of which I was texting the coven being like, what are we going to fucking do? Um, And that was in Tennessee. So this law um, states, it's it's a law in Tennessee that prohibits drag performances in public and in front of children, um, which basically could also criminalize trans people from simply being in public at all. And that was the desire of the lawmakers who originally proposed the law. Um, The version that the Tennessee governor is expected to sign um, that passed in um, the legislation does not make drag performances illegal outright. Um, because attempts to ban drag performances altogether were such a patent violation of the First Amendment that they had to add some revisions um, so that it could pass legislature. Um, but again, this we're, we're seeing this as like, Drag is harmful to children. I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I hesitate to mention it because obviously John Stewart is a bit of a normie, but there was um, a really cool clip going around of an interview that I, one of these legislatures did with John Stewart, and he just took him out took him out i mean he he is very good at that i feel like that's where he thrives yeah republicans arguments look as stupid as they actually are yeah and so if you haven't seen that i actually do recommend it because it definitely gave me some serotonin so (laughs) definitely recommend um and i feel like this is one where it's like it's one of the most kind of like explicit attempts to go back to something like the three article clothing rule where like being in public in quote unquote wrong gender clothing could be criminalized um which is definitely very concerning since like it's not really that long that we've like been without laws like that in this country right um what's been i don't know like 50 years or something so to see it going back is is not great exactly um there also have been some developments in florida um so first florida has officially now banned gender affirming health care for trans children um so that is another state where trans kids living there are going to have to consider if they want to leave the state in order to be able to continue or begin medical transition uh some kids for example who might be on puberty blockers and like in essentially just a state of like stasis and not going through puberty could be forced to go through a puberty they don't want to um which is just really horrifying and i know a lot of parents with trans kids uh who 
are considering or have left the state already because of this. Um, In addition, there was a new bill proposed in Florida that people may have heard about that has the hilarious name, the Reverse Woke Act. Um, It's so ridiculous. It's It's so ridiculous. Woke is like a buzzword, but calling something Reverse Woke is, it's like, I don't know, it's like the Asleep Act. (laughs) Putting your head in the sand act. Exactly. Head up your um, ass act. Yeah, exactly. But like not in a hot way, you know. Um, Right, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So basically what this bill actually would do is make it so that like employers that cover gender affirming care in their insurance policies could be legally liable if someone detransitioned or had regrets and wanted to sue them um which just as a reminder uh gender related surgeries have the lowest regret rates of any surgery including Mm -hmm. like medically necessary surgeries like you know having your tonsils out or whatever like next surgery yeah all of those have higher regret rates simply because surgery is like difficult and complicated Mm -hmm. than any gender affirming surgeries but that said, there always is going to be a small number of people that regret any procedure. And basically, this means that businesses are now possibly, if this law were to pass, going to stop covering gender affirming care because they're just worried about like the legal liability. Um, so basically, this could mean that people who currently have healthcare coverage with their jobs won't actually be able to use that for any transition-related care, and they would have to pay out of pocket, which is absurdly expensive. I mean, honestly, even with insurance coverage, a lot of these things are still very expensive. Um, You end up having to pay a lot of money for various things that aren't covered or that your insurer decides aren't exactly necessary or cosmetic or whatever. Um, So this is like another way to try to stop even adults from being able to transition. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I feel like when I was looking at this one last week, there's like, I mean, there's kind of an element of employers outing their trans employees with it, too. Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah, because even if you were to like, still try to provide care in some way, like having a like fund for trans employees or something, that would likely mean people would have to out themselves to access that. Exactly. Great. Um, moving right along to Kentucky. Uh, so the Kentucky House of Representatives passed this bill, House Bill 470, which is a sweeping gender affirming care ban. It would force medical providers to halt all forms of age appropriate, medically necessary and gender affirming treatment that many young trans people currently receive. Um, and I just want to add something that this article had because I think our listeners may know this, but I think it's an important statistic when it comes to thinking about medical professionals because I personally have a lot of medical trauma. And so like sometimes it can be scary to talk to your doctor about gender affirming care, but I just want to say that every credible medical organization, which represents over 1.3 million doctors in the United States, calls for age-appropriate gender-affirming care for trans and non-binary people. It's this misinformation that, you know, 
is why these bans are taking place. Um, the people who have the actual medical knowledge are in consensus about this. And I think that's just important to highlight. Yes, definitely. Um, so another recent thing that folks may have heard about, um, there was a Missouri bill. Yeah, it's, it's really upsetting. Um, this is, I think like one of the most, I guess just like one of the newest horrors basically. Um, so there was this Missouri bill already proposed to ban gender affirming care for kids, which, you know, is something that we're, we've been seeing kind of start to happen in a couple of Republican controlled states. Um, so there was an amendment proposed to this bill to also make it so that adults who are incarcerated cannot access any gender affirming care. Um, And again, like, I think this is a good example of how like youth are sort of used as the wedge issue. And then it starts to expand further and further. Um, One of the things that this bill says is that uh, basically there can't be like, in there can't be like the medical care that's in prison which is technically taxpayer funded that cannot be used to access any gender affirming care it's sort of unclear right now if you would be able to privately like pay out of pocket for treatment but i mean obviously most people in the u.s already can't afford healthcare treatment like i think you know some the majority of people in this country have some type of medical debt um like or at least a, a large proportion so folks who are incarcerated are all re- already tend to have less financial resources it's very unlikely that someone would be able to do that even if that is allowed which again is unclear, unclear right um so it's just yeah i think another example of like i mean one just like using the police state and the criminal legal system to remove people's rights but also taking something that's like, oh, we're trying to protect kids, and then it it expands and expands and expands. We fucking hate to see it. Terrible. Um, I mean, we've definitely done a lot of episodes on, like, the essentially slavery that um, continues to exist in our carceral system. So the lack of rights within that system, it's, like, one of the fastest ways to remove rights and obviously, anytime we're talking about incarceration, even among queer and trans people, um, communities of color are much higher at risk of experiencing that. So, yes, definitely. That's a good thing to point out for sure. All right. And this one's kind of fun. I mean, like, it's all fucked up, but like, this one's kind of fun because it has a. Yeah, it, ha- it has a nice part to it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so. This one's about Nebraska. Nebraska's government is, honestly, it's it's garbage fire. I mean, all the governments are garbage fire, but, like, this one's got some pretty insidious uh, bills on the docket, including a fetal heartbeat bill, a permitless concealed carry gun bill, and most grotesque of all is this legislative bill 574, which would forbid healthcare workers from providing gender affirming care to anyone under the age of 19. So, for the good news, um, this state senator, Michaela Kavanaugh, uh, is going to filibuster 
this um, from being done. Because in this state Senate, there are 17 Democrats, there are 32 Republicans. So in terms of like a voting sense, there's not much that Democrats can do to stop this. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, But this badass uh, is is going to try everything she can to to garner some uh, attention to this issue. Um, And I just want to read this quote that she Mm -hmm. says. If this legislature collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful. Painful for everyone. Because if you want to inflict pain upon our children, I am going to inflict pain upon this body. Governing body, I'm pretty sure. Um, Mm -hmm. I have nothing, nothing but time, and I'm going to use all of it. You cannot stop me. I will not be stopped. If LB 574 gets an early floor debate and moves forward, it will be very painful for this body. And if people are like, is she threatening us? Let me be clear. Yes, I am threatening you. Yes. (laughs) I'm obsessed. Like, I I, like don't even like politicians, but I'm like, yes, bitch, let's fucking go. If, If any cis listeners are wondering, this is how you do allyship. Yeah, exactly. That's being an ally. Yeah. So one last thing before we move on to Trans Joy that I wanted to mention, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene did once again recently introduce this legislation called the Protect Children's Innocence Act, NORML, uh, which basically would make it a felony to provide gender affirming care to a minor. Um, There is basically no chance that this would pass and become federal law. But I think it's worth pointing out, like, this This is part of this trend and, like, the ways that Republicans are kind of coalescing around this issue. It spans, like, state legislatures. It's coming up at the federal level. Um, these are all linked. And even though this bill almost certainly will not happen, knock on wood, um, there are many similar bills in states like Florida, for example, that will pass and those states will become places where it's very difficult for children to access any type of gender affirming care um so that is all terrible i think we've covered a lot of the bullshit let's move on to trans joy yes let's do it um so we wanted to follow up the absolute fuckery that is media bias as well as all the anti-trans laws mentioned above with some trans joy trans love and trans power first of all we love you we fucking love you if that's not clear yes like especially just i mean you know i know we have some cis straight listeners we do love you but like our trans and queer listeners we love you so much we and like love we're you. we're with you yeah i i was reflecting kind of prepping for this episode well a it's like randomly international women's day today oh, yeah. um and season of the bitch started out by being a women's podcast which like is funny for me personally to look back on as someone who started the podcast <laughs> and like does not identify as a woman <laughs> anymore. Um, well, you know, you you live and you learn. We all we yeah, all grow. Yeah, yeah, learn. <laughs> yeah, learn. <laughs> yeah ex- exactly. Um, 
But like, I mean, obviously we are still a feminist podcast and that thread of understanding that like the thread of understanding patriarchy is still absolutely a core element of our work. And we've taken that understanding and pushed it into integrating how patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism and all the fuckery of isms impact queer and trans people. We're trans and non-binary and queer here. All right. Especially like the two of us. I mean, like I, I, I was like, I know you and I both identify as trans. I don't know if our other two just identify as non-binary. Who, right. But like, but we're yes. trans and non-binary. We're all we're all somewhere like within this umbrella. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. And so many listeners that we have are the same. So I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for being part of our community. And I truly believe that our community is a real place of trans joy and trans power. Um, When we have our reading groups or when we have like any time, like when we did live shows, like getting able, being able to interact with y'all is so amazing, you know? Yes. and I also want to speak directly to anyone who's feeling really, really scared right now. Anyone who's feeling like they're slipping away from their true identity because society is pushing them to do so. Please know that you are loved. You are so perfect in your fullness and we will not be erased. We will continue to stand together and fight for our freedom If anyone just needs someone to talk to, please feel free to reach out, whether it's through our Discord or Instagram or whatever. Like, we have a cis venting channel in our Discord, another shout out for our Discord. But, like, also, if you just reach out to, like, you can reach out to me on social media and, like, I will literally just talk to you and we can talk about the amazing parts about being trans. Um, Just connect with trans family because it, it, it truly will help us get through this. Um, and while this is obviously absolutely abhorrent what we're living through right now, I think it's good. At least it helped me a little bit when I had my bathtub spiral the other day to remember that anti-transness is not anything new and we have survived this long and we will continue to survive into infinity and beyond. Take time away from organizing. Take time away from educating your cis friends and be with other trans people. I know it feels like we have to do everything all the time right now, but it is crucial that you are taking care of yourself first. I love you. Love you too. To you, but also to our listeners. I love you. Oh my God. (laughs) Um. I, yeah, I totally agree with all of that and um, echo what Adelaide was saying about like reaching out on social media. I honestly don't even know. I think my Twitter DMs are open, but if you can't figure out how to get in touch with me, uh, send me an email, ozzylinus at gmail.com. I I will, if you're trans, I will talk to you. Literally same. (laughs) Adelaide loves you 777 at (laughs) gmail.com. Um, I also just want to say in a more general sense that I just love being trans so much Mm -hmm. and every step that step that I've taken in my transition has been the best thing that I've ever done for myself. Um, and I'm finally at a point this year where I can actually say that I'm spending the majority of my time feeling like 
centered and grounded in my body rather than dissociating, which is new for me. Um, So if you are someone who's out there feeling like worried about everything that's going on and unsure if you want to come out or, you know, take different steps in transition because of this, I would encourage you to still do it and find people who will support you because they're out there. Um, And honestly, it may mean moving to a different city. It may mean moving to a different state if that is what it means for you. But it also might just mean finding the spaces in your community that are centering trans and queer people because they exist even in the most like Republican controlled states. There are still queer people living their lives there and doing so happily and joyfully mm-hmm. in spite of all of the bullshit. Exactly. Um, I was reading the other day about how the 1917 flu epidemic kind of directly paved the way for Nazi Germany to take control of a huge part of the world because it was this sort of like wave of eugenics and p- people who were already marginalized and disabled being the most at risk that sort of allowed um this like yeah like fascist eugenicist mindset to take root in a lot of like previously more moderate sort of areas and i think unfortunately it's not surprising that we're seeing this kind of similar confluence of eugenics with the pandemic and fascism with anti-trans legislation like all coming together right now um at the same time that does like give me hope in a weird way because it's like this is a phase this is a phase of very extreme fascism and fascists having control of a lot of parts of government that is playing out right now but it's not going to last forever um you know these these things do come in waves and like please just remember that they have never succeeded in killing all of us, no matter how hard they tried. Even Nazi Germany did not succeed in killing all of the queer and trans people. So, like, this is a very scary moment, but also, like, we have been through times like this, and we have gotten through them, um, and, like, we will again. Yeah. So true. So fucking true. Um. Okay, so here's some stories of trans joy. Um, I wanted to share um, a quick short story of what I've been doing to feel and share trans joy recently. So if you follow me on social media, you probably already know about this, but I've been reconnecting with my inner child and inner teenager through dance. Um, I danced for 15 years and obviously dancing can be a very feminine uh, sport. But even when I was growing up, I I mostly took jazz and hip hop classes. Like I was really not into ballet. I mean, the the dancers who do that are extremely impressive, to be clear. I'm not hating on it. It just obviously didn't it make sense for, for me. Yeah. <clears throat> um and I truly believe that dancing is one of the most ancient practices that rids the body. Um and a space of evil or negative energy. Um, If you look at literally any indigenous culture, dancing is a very central part of of that work. It really helps physically shift energy within your body so you can feel more at peace. Um, So yeah, I've just been dancing like a big old weirdo. And I first like obviously was just kind of doing it for myself. And then I realized... I think the first time I I shared a video of it was like uh, on Valentine's Day Um, and I got really into the Celine Dion song, 
called That's the Way It Is. Um, <laughs> I just had to think about yes. it for a second. Uh, and so it's like absolutely goofy, um, you know, and I've been sharing it on social media to spread joy. And like I've gotten so much feedback from folks, from people I haven't heard from in years about how it brightens their day, helps them feel hopeful, helps them smile on a, on days when they aren't feeling it. Um and also helps them feel more comfortable expressing themselves without limits. Like on TikTok, people have been duetting me and like dancing along and I'm like so fucking stoked. Um, <laughs> and and that. a lot of the people who duet with me are also queer. So it's just like really nice. And I know that that's not as exciting as like some of the things we're going to get into and it's not like as trans and queer specific, but like I think any way we can experience joy is a revolutionary act. And so even if it's dancing like a little freak in your living room, it's still important. Yes. And I think also specifically like joyful ways to be in our bodies are so important. Because as that Onion article pointed out, it's really our bodies that these weirdos are so obsessed with. And like that, I think that can like be very damaging to just be in that like headspace of like everyone thinks my body is weird. And just getting into your body in a positive way is really important. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a recent experience of trans joy that I had, which was coming out to my mom's family, um, some of whom are kind of conservative, but overall it went really well. Like it really honestly exceeded my wildest expectations of how it could have gone. Um, And I know that this is not the case for everyone, but I think in my situation, I was at a point where I was like, okay with the possibility that it would not go well and that's what allowed me to do it and then it turned out it really was not at all what i was fearing and mostly was wonderful um i did find out that one of my aunts has been saying some transphobic shit behind my back canceled um, which yeah you hate to see it um but you know then i also have the cousin who's like letting me know about that so yeah that's exactly. my ally. <laughs> Um, And I have eight other aunts and uncles, uh, most of whom were there at this visit and were very supportive. One of them even voted for Trump, but was still like super accepting of my name change. Um, And all of my cousins who are like, you know, in my sort of age group, like millennial uh, to Zoomer age cohort have been very supportive, uh, including the ones who are like toddlers and pretty young children. It was really they get amazing. It better than most, I swear to God. Yeah, I think it's really like it's so easy for them. Like, you know, they there was like a moment where some of my younger cousins were like, wait, like, who are you? Like, what is your name? Like, they were just like confused because they hadn't seen me in a while also. But then like they just got it and were completely on board with it. Yes. Um, and it was really amazing to have my little cousins who I love, like calling me by the right name and pronouns for the first time. Um, yeah, so we wanted to share some submissions that we got from our Discord, uh, which again is beautiful space of trans joy, um, of folks just sharing some experiences that, that they had recently as well. Um, so Marie says, I'm not sure if you'd count this as trans joy, but waking up in the recovery room after my vulvoplasty was my ultimate experience of gender euphoria. And then earlier this week, I saw my laser tech currently working on my chest who had done the prep for my bottom surgery, and I showed her my 
cat emoji. Pussy. Uh, yeah, pussy, <laughs> kitty. Not sure what we're going for there, but it's a cat. <laughs> um, it was an amazing rush of joy when she said she didn't think it looked any different than a natural one. Hell yeah. Um, yes. I love that. I definitely consider that trans joy. And I love that it's uh, medical transition related. Exactly. Because I think it's really important to like remember that there's all this coverage of like people having regrets and blah 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 but it's like that is such a small percentage of people most of us are thrilled with the medical transition steps that we take and they're like things that allow us to continue to be alive literally um, everyone i know who's had top surgery i i i think i just ha- i'm in circle with a lot of people who got rid of their boobs <laughs> that kind of top yes. surgery obviously can go either way <laughs> And everyone I know is like, I'm shirtless. I'm fucking hot. Like, it's so good. The joy that comes with that is so good. And obviously, it can go in all yes, the gender ways. It's, it's like so affirming to people. Yeah. If I didn't have the world's smallest titties, you know, I'd be I'd be on that list for sure. But <laughs> <laughs> <it's> blessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly. Literally. Um. So this person DM'd me on Discord, and they wrote, I came out to a very small number of friends as non-binary, but the more I read and learn, the more I lean into the mask parts of myself. So my gender is just detour and under construction for now, I guess. TBH, relatable to us all, probably. Um, And then they wrote, my trans joy is remembering times in my childhood that I did more traditionally boy things. And realizing that this is not a new, new, not a new part of my identity, but one that I am finally safe enough to express. I think one of my favorite examples is that as a child, one of my earliest memories is being asked if I wanted to have a princess party and dress up for my birthday. And apparently I just wanted to dress up as crocodile hunter and lead my friends on a wilderness exploration through the (laughs) woods by my house. I was young enough that it was seen as cute and I was allowed to dress up and have my wilderness exploration. I just thought I was going to grow up to be the crocodile hunter. And I think I just responded to this person like, crikey. I love that. So good. It's so, so good. We love it. That's amazing. And, you know, you can grow up to be the crocodile hunter if you want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, this one is from Evelyn Jane, who says, this morning I was drawing doodles with my three-year-old and she showed me a drawing of a girl with a triangle dress and long eyelashes and said, it's you, mama. And that definitely filled up my trans joy quota for the day. Oh, trans parents. Wow. Just got chills. Oh, my God. I love that so much. That's so sweet. Um, This next one, our final one, comes from a very special woman. She's so amazing. And her name's Anna Marie, legendary trans icon, educator, friend of the pod, queen of my heart. She's got a doctorate in chemical engineering and does a lot of work in transforming STEM spaces into safe spaces filled with political action. She's also an incredible public educator and does a lot on TikTok. Um, Her handle is at that Anna Marie, as well as hosts her own podcast called Rule 63. And she shared a really beautiful story with me on Instagram that I wanted to share with y'all. I did something on Friday that felt like I was healing intergenerational trauma. I was invited to give a talk at UConn for the Molecular and Cell Biology Department's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Seminar Series. So I 
used it as an opportunity to talk about biological essentialism as it pertains to both gender and race. The rise in anti-trans bills, how trans-exclusive science enables legislative genocide, my own story as someone who transitioned during her PhD program, and how STEM departments can make their cultures more trans-inclusive with specific action items. There were more than 100 participants, almost entirely cis people, who really engaged with the talk. People came up to me and called it captivating and having strong TED Talk vibes. So my moment of trans joy is that I was able to educate so many people about what trans people go through and how to treat us with respect and dignity. I genuinely feel like my trans ancestors were healed, that I was healed for getting to share my story in a safe space, and that future generations of trans people will be better off because of all of this. I am honestly so thrilled and cannot wait for the next opportunity to share my story. Literally so freaking iconic. Anna Marie, keep up the amazing work. She's literally unbelievable. That's so great. I love that. Well, if you would like to connect with all of these folks who we've read some stories from, as well as us, you can join our Discord by going to patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, we are also on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. You can visit our website, seasonofthebee.com, and you can rate, review, subscribe, follow, like, whatever on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you're listening to us right now. That's, That's freaking right. This week. We oh. love you so much. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.